Really, it was just a, a talk. It was 30 minutes summing up what I'd spent two years working on. And this lovely chap, Paul, Paul Lewis, who is now my, my boss at, at Google, he was also speaking there. And just afterwards, he just grabbed me and said, that was, that was really interesting. And there's actually an opening on my team, at, at, on the DevTools team, where we're, we're kind of doing a lot of this stuff. And as you were talking, it made me think that maybe you would be interested. Um, do you want to chat about it? Hello and welcome to the Scrimber podcast. I'm your host, Alex Booker from Scrimber, and today I'm joined by Jack Franklin. Jack works on the Chrome developer tool teams at, you guessed it, Google. Now, Jack and I have known each other for a while. Our paths crossed when we worked at a startup some years ago. I was so excited when I learned that Jack got an opportunity to work at Google, so I brought him onto the podcast to learn exactly how the opportunity came about, what the interview process looked like, and how you can maximize your opportunity to get an awesome developer job in the near future. We're gonna jump into Jack's story and go back to the beginning and learn how things like blogging and writing and giving talks and working on open source gave Jack an edge that ultimately led to this amazing, inspiring opportunity. We'll jump in in just a second, but please remember to subscribe to the podcast. It shows us that we should keep bringing guests like Jack on so we can inspire and help you. Also, at the end of the episode, I'm going to give you an opportunity to win some Scrimber merchandise, so stay tuned for that. Jack, I was really excited when I heard that you got an opportunity to work at Google. How does an opportunity like that come about? Yeah, a, a bit of luck and good timing, but also I think for me, it came about from uh, speaking at a conference where another person who is now uh, on my same team at, at Google saw me speak. He worked for Google and uh, happened to have a sort of job opening that really kind of luckily matched the sort of stuff I was talking about. So I was talking about components and software migrations and maintaining sort of legacy code bases. Uh, and the opportunity was to join the, the DevTools team and sort of work on this big code base that maybe needed a bit of modernizing into the newer kind of web standards. So it was just a sort of this well-aligned time where I happened to be in this talk on this this stuff and this person who was hiring to join their team happened to have a, a sort of opening on that team. So it just really aligned well. And then he, we had a chat after the conference. He suggested that I uh, go for the interviews and apply. And unfortunately, it all kind of worked out worked out well. That's amazing. It feels like a case of making your own luck. Um, I feel like uh, Google is a pretty cool place to work. A lot of people aspire to say the G word and say that they work there. <laughs> What's it like working at Google? It's great. I I absolutely love it. Um, so I've been there just over a year now. It's slightly odd time to join. I think I joined four weeks before we were all sent to work permanently from home. And I, I've been back into the office actually last week for the first time, which, which was nice. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's been great for me. It's it, firstly just the opportunity for me to work on the dev tools, which are used by so many people is, is I feel very fortunate and lucky to be able to, to do that. Also from a, I've always sort of enjoyed teaching people how to code. So I've taught so many people using the dev tools. So to now be in a position to influence and, and improve those dev tools for both really experienced developers and for brand new developers, just starting out is something that kind of is a lot of motivation for me. Uh, and it's, uh, I've just learned a lot in, in a short space of time. I think the thing about Google is it's such a big company. You've got so many people who are so knowledgeable and have been doing this stuff for such a long period of time, far longer than I have. So if you, if you want to go somewhere, just like soak up knowledge and, and, and inspiration from other people, it's been a great place to, to do that for me. Um, I feel like I'm barely getting started. I've been here over a year now. So 
yeah, just dipping my toes in at the moment. Very cool. I've got a lot of questions, but I'm going to hold off towards the end to ask them because I would love to go a bit closer to the beginning of your journey and learn how you got into programming and when you decided you wanted to be a professional programmer. Was it something you always knew? How did the opportunity come about? I kind of came about it from an odd angle of uh, my dad actually decided he wanted to learn how to build websites. I don't even know why necessarily. I think it was for the football team that I played for. Like when I was 13, 14, he was a coach. I, I played in the, the team. And I think someone uh, volunteered my dad to, to build the, the website for Falmouth Rangers, we were called. Uh, and so he, he learned, I think he bought uh, Rachel Andrews CSS anthology book, I think it was called, kind of quite a big, chunky book, fantastic book, um, or teaching people CSS. And we, we learned it together, actually. He, I think he offered me like a, a tenor if I helped or something. So that was good enough for me. Uh, and I got into doing that. And then from there... Yeah, dad started doing kind of part-time web websites for friends and sort of local businesses. And I, I helped with that. Uh, and then whereas I think dad just stopped at the HTML and CSS side, like that was a bit he liked. I kind of got more interested in and learned about this uh, JavaScript thing. And then I bought a book on PHP and built the worst blogging platform that's ever existed. Like I sort of hacked this WordPress. PHP and no, no, it was my own <laughs> custom version full of security holes and vulnerabilities and bad code. But it that was when, for me, I started thinking, I actually really enjoy doing this. And it was something I thought I was felt fairly productive at, like I thought I could be okay at, at doing this. And that was really when I decided to do computer science or, or have the goal of doing computer science at a university, which, which set the ball rolling. And am I right in thinking you did go to university to study computer science? A lot of yes. people, I think, debate whether it's worthwhile going, considering the cost and the benefit of a degree. What's your take? I don't think there's one right answer. I think it really depends on the individual and what their goals are and um, where they want to be. For me, it will also, I managed to sneak in before the in the UK, the university fees tripled. Uh, so I avoided that, which <laughs> I think that would certainly influence my decision these days. Um, for me, actually, the main benefit of university wasn't necessarily the degree, but for me, it was like being in a different place. So I, I grew up in Cornwall, which is in, you know, the far southwest of the country, a long way away from anywhere. And so university gave me the opportunity to move into, I went to Bath University. It was great. I enjoyed the course and I, I did find it useful, but I also just found going somewhere different and being around people that were sort of interested in the same thing was really beneficial and particularly Bath was kind of an hour and a half on the train to London, 15 minutes to Bristol, which is quite a big city where there was quite a lot going on as, as well. There was a there was a web meetup in Bath that I could go to and it was free and they had pizza and beer and I was a student. So that that suited me absolutely perfectly. Uh, and there were even like meetups in London I would, could go to or I did um, some I got a sort of freelance job working for a little agency in, in Bath, like, you know, a few hours a week, I would do some HTML, CSS, jQuery type stuff for them. So for me, university was absolutely fantastic. Have I found I absolutely needed the course to do anything since? Probably not. I think I, you know, there are other routes in that don't rely on having a comp side degree, particularly now, but for everything else around the course and being in a different city with more going on was, was so beneficial. I can, I can totally relate to that. Like you're, you're definitely like a sum of the people you hang out with the most. And if you're with other aspirational students and inspiring teachers near meetups, that can only be a really positive thing. But Jack, I feel, I get the impression that Google is the kind of company where they really benefit and really appreciate a computer science degree. Um, 
In fact, I've heard that they're like application tracking systems. When you apply, if you if you don't have a degree, it basically doesn't let your in, your resume through to the recruiter. What, what's your impression? That's not the impression I get. Uh, I would caveat this by saying, obviously, I have one experience going through the Google recruiting system, so I can't necessarily speak for every uh, experience or every team at Google. For me, uh, I I don't get the impression that a comp sci degree is is required or something that is non negotiable. Yeah. You know, is it beneficial? Probably. Like it probably does help to some degree to, to have that background. But I think these days we're, you know, much more encouraged to look at people's work experience. And there are, you know, there are many different courses into computer science or rather programming in, in general that don't require the degree. I get the impression, again, don't know that many years ago, a comp sci degree was probably more a thing that was required. But for me, certainly if I'm interviewing a candidate at, at Google, it doesn't um, I don't take anything like that into account. I I do one of the software engineering interviews uh, and that person just has 45 minutes to to be interviewed by me and I'll sort of take them on what they are able to to demonstrate to me in that 45 minutes. Background is entirely irrelevant as, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really the approach people are taking. Like, let's, you know, let's see what you can actually do when we when we ask you some questions. Oh, sure. I would love to learn more about the interview process in a minute, but I also feel like this is a great segue into something you were doing in and around university, which was giving talks at meetups. And later you had a pretty like prolific conference circuit, speaking at conferences like pretty much every month for a long time, if I remember correctly. What was that like for you? Yeah, so I got into it. I, I mentioned the meetups at university where I could go and there was there was beer and pizza and they were always after speakers and um i just decided to like go for it uh and started doing talks on various things i i do think back to my first conference talk i I think it was a very poor talk if if i'm honest i don't think i really nailed the subject i didn't really have a good topic i kind of had to invent a talk without really having an idea of what i wanted to talk about which which never really goes so well but then i just started doing uh talks on various javascript things just things I'd learned. And I was like, you know, early twenties, I was not an expert at any of this stuff. I was just doing talks because I found it interesting and wanted to share what I'd, I'd come across. I think that was something I'd encourage people listening who haven't done any talks, who maybe, who maybe have a desire to do so in the future is you don't, you don't have to be an absolute expert in the whole of JavaScript to be able to do a really good, interesting talk on a particular thing that you've, that you've worked on. I just did it quite a lot and some of them were good some of them were bad but with everyone i got better at, at doing it and really it was a fantastic way to meet people it was a fantastic way if you're thinking very selfishly to get in front of a big audience where some of those people in that audience are probably hiring uh yeah, particularly they could work you know, at google yeah well exactly they could work at google or you know even earlier on i met people who i then ended up working with or for in the future because they're like oh um we're hiring a javascript developer and i remembered seeing you talk at a conference four years ago uh, you know, I was a student and they were like, oh, um, do you need a job when you're graduating? You know, maybe we could talk. So it was really, really beneficial from that point of view, along with meeting a lot of uh, people and growing networks on things like Twitter, which Twitter has its flaws, but I think it was still a very f- good way to meet people and, and chat and sort of stay in touch with people as well. So yeah, that that was sort of a big part of, of what I did. I then got a job as a developer relations person. So then literally my job became travel primarily across Europe, doing talks at, at conferences most most weeks and months, which was, I, I loved it, but it was very full on. 
And um, I ended up getting to a place where I was ready to go and be an engineer again and sort of build products rather than just do conference talks. That wasn't quite for me in the end. Just quickly on the topic of giving talks and meetups and conferences, we're recording this in May 2021. We're in the midst or the tail end of a pandemic, depending on where you live. We really love it when people can take like actionable ideas away from the podcast. What's your impression of giving talks online, like in Zoom calls or at online events? I find them much, much harder, uh, surprisingly, because, and the, the main reason why is because there's, you don't get that feedback from the audience. So I have now got two monitors. So what I can do if I'm presenting online is I can have my presentation on one and I can have sort of the, the Zoom screen or the, the Google Meet screen or whatever the sort of conference technology is. So at least then you can see the participants and their webcams and stuff. But for a while, I only had one screen. And so you, you boot up your slides full screen, and then there's just no visual feedback that there's even anyone there listening to you because all you can see in front of you is your slides. So I find that a real challenge, actually. I think it depends on your speaking style. I'm kind of someone I, I like to sort of be a little bit silly or make like the odd silly joke on, on stage and sort of play off how the audience are responding. And if you take that audience away, suddenly you're just speaking at your computer screen, which is much harder, I think. But what I would say to anyone who has, has done an online one, I think if you can do one online, you are set to do one in person because I genuinely think they're easier to do. I've seen some conferences do pre-recordings. So rather than do live talks, it will all be pre-recorded. I think that works better because also then you can polish the, the slides. You can have a bit of a sort of tighter talk and then you can pop on to do like live Q and A afterwards, which I think is quite a good combination. But, you know, I'm hopeful that at some point in the next year, we might be able to attend an event in person, but, um, We'll, we'll see how it goes. That'd be very cool. Yeah, you're a very confident, very witty speaker. I've always enjoyed your talks and there's loads on YouTube. So if anybody's listening and they want to get a sense for Jack speaking, I would definitely recommend you check them out. Um, I remember some advice I got and I'm going to bring it up because it came from Ben Foxall, who we both know. Mm. When I gave my first meetup talk, he told me, Alex, remember, everybody in the audience wants you to be successful. Like they're all on your side. And I found that really empowering. Yeah, everyone wants to enjoy your talk, right? So they're all there for you and it can feel, you know, say you accidentally press forwards on your, your clicker too quickly and pop to the next slide too quickly and have to go back. In your head, that's like the biggest mistake ever and it's so embarrassing. No, no one in the audience cares about that sort of stuff. That happens all the time. You stumble over your sentences, that happens. It's half an hour of talking, you're, you're going to make that mistake. But everyone in the audience wants you to do well. So what I've practiced and got better at was if I did misspeak a, a sentence, I would just stop uh, and just say it again. So that's a really impactful piece of advice. The other, if I could give one other piece, it would be that a five second pause on stage feels like 10 minutes, but it really is really quick. And so someone encouraged me to just every now and then just stop for a couple of seconds, just take a breath, grab a glass of water if you want to drink. Obviously it's very easy to get a dry throat if you're talking um, repeatedly. Just take a breath for a second and it, it will feel like so long to you, but it's such a short space of time. And it just lets everyone just sort of just settle down again. And that combination of, as you say, remembering everyone's on your side and just slowing down, going a bit slower than you feel you should has been really impactful, I think, for, for my talks. I do want to point out that you were, I think, a very, very successful 
meetup and conference speaker. And the reason why I have this impression is before we met, I followed you on Twitter, actually. And I remember, and this was many, many years ago, like we've <laughs> known each other for a while, actually. It must have been like 2015, 2016, when, mm. like you said, you were in your early 20s, very young, I think. And you, I saw a picture of you on stage with Remy Sharp, who is quite well-known writer and creator in the JavaScript space, as well as Lee Byron, who has a lot of association with... Do you, do you recognize what I'm talking about? I think it was... I forget the name of the event, but there was like a Facebook logo in the back. So I think you might have been at the, Re- the, Le- the Facebook venue in London. And I was like, what the hell, man? This guy's like my age, basically. How is he giving a talk or a meetup panel around Facebook? Like, I thought that was so impressive. Thank, thank you. Um, it was it was a conference. I forgot the name. Where all the there were no talks. There were just panels. I cannot remember what it's called. I might have to dig it up, and maybe you can put a link in the the notes or or tweet it. Yeah, it was basically a series of panels. So we were. I can't remember what the topic of the panel was, but for what it's worth, I remember feeling incredibly out of my depth. Because uh, yeah, like Remy, I'd followed for a number of years. You know, he runs a conf- JavaScript conference in in Brighton um, called FFConf. I'd I think I had his like one of his books on my bookcase. Lee Byron at the time was working at Facebook, kind of on lots of React type things, which was an area I was really interested in. So yeah, read all his blog posts. I think there was even another panelist. I can't quite remember who. Um, and again, same thing. It was someone else. Like, I can't believe I'm even chatting to this this person. This is someone I've followed on Twitter for years. So yeah, it, it did feel slightly un- unusual, but it was a great experience to, to be able to do. And I felt very fortunate, but yeah, slightly out of my depth, perhaps. That is encouraging to hear. I feel better. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you mentioned Remy Sharp's book and it reminded me that I'm not sure about the timeline, maybe before or just after you were involved in writing a book. I won't hold it against you. You were involved in a book about, about jQuery. That's yeah. insane. Like that was, was it published by a press, if I remember yeah. correctly? It was. That, so you had a publisher and everything. How does yeah. something like that even happen? And what was your experience writing a book? So that happened because I, I started blogging actually, uh, just on my own. Well, it was on my own website, but it was called javascriptplayground.com. I didn't use my own name. Don't know why. Uh, I've now since swapped to using my own name. So JavaScript Playground will just redirect you. Um, but I just started blogging about all things I could think of. And actually, same thing I spoke about earlier in terms of encouraging people who want to speak. You don't have to be an expert in the area, just if you've got sort of a good idea for a talk. Exactly the same with blogging. I, I would just blog stuff really that I just learned. Uh, it, it wasn't me writing authoritative blog posts as a sort of expert in the particular subject. It was just, I found this thing interesting today and I learned it. And what you have to remember is the world isn't full of people who are all experts on these things. There are, there are a range of experts, people with a bit of experience through to complete beginners. So you're a blog post that to you might feel quite basic to someone is the perfect introduction they need to language X, Y or library, whatever that you're, you're writing about. So I just, at the time I was doing quite a lot of JavaScript and, and jQuery, uh, and I just started blogging about it. And then, um, I think got a bit fortunate that a couple of my blog posts got picked up on Hacker News or maybe like a subreddit, like that sort of thing and had kind of a surprising amount of traffic. And then one day out of the blue, I had an email from, um, someone at APRESS saying, would you be interested in authoring a book, uh, on jQuery? We're looking for authors and we found your blog. Uh, so of course Do you I mind said, if I ask how old you were at the time. I would have been either 20 or 21 when I wrote Did they that. know how young you were? I don't think they did initially, but I think they then did when they spoke to me. But to be honest, I think I think that the subject of the book was that you, you didn't have to be 
kind of the most experienced expert developer like at that point i knew jQuery pretty well but i wouldn't say i was an expert and actually i learned a lot writing the book about bits of jQuery and javascript that i didn't know about because writing is a really good way to find out if you understand something i think if you, if you set out to write a blog post on in my case jQuery uh if, if there's a particular part of that that thing that you're not knowledgeable about or your knowledgeable is your knowledge sorry is slightly missing you'll find it because you'll go to explain it and you won't be able to in your blog post. So then you have to pause and go and learn and fully sort of understand that thing to be able to, to write a sort of good blog post teaching it. So I learned a lot doing, doing the blog post uh, or doing the book rather, but yeah, I think they were a little bit surprised when they realized that I was sort of still a university um, student, but yeah, I, I just, I sort of leapt at the opportunity. I mean, being a published author was something I'd, sort of considered doing in the far flung future. I didn't think I would get a chance to do it so soon. It was a good experience. It had some downsides. It was just a lot of work uh, and I was working full time at that point. I was on my like internship placement year. So I had a full time job and then I came home and then I wrote for two or three hours most evenings. So it was a lot to take on. And I think my sort of physical health suffered a bit because I spent a lot of time at a desk writing about jQuery. Uh, but, it, you know, ultimately I look back on it and I'm glad I did it. Yeah, but it, it was a lot of work, a lot of work, more than you might imagine. It's not even that big a book <laughs> when it arrived. So they sent like 20 copies to my house. I was really disappointed at how thin it was. I really wanted it to be like a super thick kind of reference book. And it was really disappointingly small. I'm now very glad that I only wrote a book of that size because that was so much work. I don't think I could have done much more beyond that. Are you still using jQuery nowadays? No, no, I'm, I'm not. Um, I don't, okay, sure. I don't subscribe to the jQuery is dead sort of theory and, and tweets, uh, by any means. No, 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 Jack, if we, if we go down this path, we'll be here for hours. <laughs> we'll be arguing this for a long time, but no, I don't use it at the moment. So after the book and after the talks and stuff, you, you pretty much, and after the internship, it sounds like you went full into work, right? And yeah. from what I recall, you tried a few different companies and different places within those companies. If I remember right, you were doing some Ruby on Rails and backend stuff. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think your focus shift towards like developer relations and then nowadays pretty much front end. I, I don't seem to recall you focusing too much on like CSS and designing pages and stuff like that so much as the kind of JavaScript parts, the structure and the performance and the API design parts of JavaScript. What was what were you thinking when you first went into the workplace? Because it seems like there was some exploration to do that. Yeah, so I deliberately looked for uh, a startup. It's kind of a smaller size company as my first job. My kind of logic being that firstly, my university really pushed everyone to go and join big investment banks uh, in the city. And that, that just wasn't for me. That wasn't what I wanted to do. So I kind of deliberately stayed clear of that. Uh, and again, actually via, via meetups and conferences, I, I actually ended up tweeting, like I'm graduating this summer and would like a job in London, please. Uh, and had a couple of different people ping and be like, you're welcome to cover an interview. We're sort of hiring like entry level engineers. Uh, and so one, uh, the company I joined was called go cardless. Uh, I honestly thought I absolutely bombed the interview. It was, I, I just felt like I absolutely, I, I rang, my mum rang me on the train home, asked how it went. And I almost burst into tears. I was so disappointed with how it went. Uh, anyway, it turns out I didn't go quite so bad, but they did what I think would be the ideal job interview in an ideal world. And they rang me and said, why don't we pay you to come and work for a week for us? And it will let you see a bit more about what it's like here. And it will let us see a bit more about what you're like working with day to day, um, which I thought was a really great um, thing to do. Obviously, 
in the ideal world, you do that for everyone, but obviously it's not practical for people to take a week off because I was a student, I could, I could do it. That was great. I had a really good time there. As you said, I, I was doing mostly backend stuff, kind of hired as a Ruby on Rails developer. But I, at that point, you know, I'd written the book on uh, the book, <laughs> a book on jQuery. I didn't mean that. I'd written the book on jQuery. I'd written a book on jQuery. I, I knew enough front end as well. And it happened that, um, the main sort of front end people at GoCardless, think one left um quite suddenly or one was out on a holiday for a while and suddenly there was no one to do the front end stuff and i was like well i i could probably have a go at that and that's that was the start of me kind of transitioning into being a front end engineer but mm -hmm. what i really liked at go cardless was i got to do both sides so i could implement the api in ruby on rails and then do the front end that consumed that api so i, I really enjoyed that side uh, but you're right there was a a fair amount of exploring from Gokardas. I joined uh, Pusher, where we where we cross paths uh, in in developer relations, which again was was that was a complete sort of uh, different move. And I remember explaining it to a friend, and I said, "This is either going to be something I absolutely love, and I'll do developer relations for a long, long time, or it's going to be something I enjoy for a bit, but then decide that actually I'm better suited being an engineer building a product." Just quickly for anybody listening. Can you define developer relations? I appreciate that can be tricky because it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people and teams, but maybe what did you do at Pusher where, where you worked as a developer advocate? Yeah, good, good point. Um, so at Pusher, my job really was, so Pusher was a, a sort of an abstraction over web sockets that made it easy or easier to build kind of real time games or real time chat platforms, anything like that. We've got lots of people doing something at the same time. You need that information to update. On everyone's you still got your pitch down. I like it. I've still, I've still got it nailed. Um, and so really as developer relations, our job was to go and demonstrate how powerful and fantastic pusher was to developers at, at companies. That was really the, the idea. Um, so of course you can't just like ring a company up and, or turn up at their door and start showing them how great pushers libraries are. So the way we kind of got in front of those people was we would do conference talks. Uh, not necessarily about Pusher, just about things we were interested in. But then Pusher would normally sponsor that conference. So we'd have like a booth or an area people could come if they're interested in learning more about Pusher. So really, I saw the job as getting Pusher in front of as many developers as possible via blogging, via conference talks, via sponsoring uh, like student hackathons and, and meetups, um, all that kind of thing. But I think loads of companies have developer relations and depending on which company you talk to it, it can mean a lot of different things but that was kind That's of the right. approach we took at, at pusher i would say we don't need to say much more about it but i think it's really fun to bring up because a lot of people when they're exploring the job market they might be interested in content creation and marketing or maybe about designing beautiful developer experiences not just user experiences in which case that's a great avenue to explore but you decided it wasn't in the capacity of pusher at least it wasn't what you wanted to focus on I missed building a product. I missed kind of getting hands-on with the the code and working on a product every day and building bigger features. I spent the best part of a year there just speaking at all these conferences, again, building up networks, meeting interesting people, learning a lot from other conference speakers, uh, chatting to, to loads of people, doing loads of really interesting jobs. So it was, I had a really, really good time. It just wasn't quite what I wanted to do longer term in my career. You mentioned the word the words front-end engineer. I figured you'd be a great person to ask actually about the difference between like a front-end developer and a front-end engineer. Oh, I, I think largely people can come up with all sorts of job titles for largely what boils down to the same job. For me, I don't differentiate too much between engineer and, and developer. I think it just happens to be, so at Google, everyone's an engineer. 
Uh, whereas at other companies I worked at, I was a developer. I, I don't necessarily think it, there's too much to read into that beyond just the choice of, of words. Um, I think the main difference in front end comes from people who more prefer doing the design side of it and people who more in the sort of traditional, I guess, like there, there are people who've kind of gone from back end engineering to front end engineering. And then there are also people who like doing front end design and UI work. And so I kind of sit close to the engineering side where I'm thinking more about how do we build sort of maintainable, reliable, robust software that's going to last years and years with lots of people working on it and adding new features? Uh, how do we ensure we test it well? How do we make sure we don't ship broken uh, code or that kind of thing? There are other job roles where it's, okay, I'm going to take what I'm going to work very closely with a designer to convert this design into a sort of pixel perfect, lovely, responsive, full of nice animations, like a really great user experience. And I do do some of that on, on DevTools, but you know, DevTools as a product, people normally aren't there to see loads of nice animations as they work through stuff. Like they're popping up DevTools because there's a bug and they want to figure out the bug as quickly as possible. So it's a slightly, you know, there, it's not really a front end role that involves a lot of really fine details um, of, of UI all the time. It does sometimes. And there's some stuff working on at the moment where we are really focusing in on those details, but I tend to do more engineering than sort of design. Let's segue into the opportunity at Google. What was your conference talk about and what did the conversation that followed look like? Good question. Yeah. So I was talking about dealing with legacy code, which is something that I've ended up sort of enjoying. And it's kind of one of the things I think I kind of specialize in. And for, for that was at a company called Thread where I worked for a couple of years and we were dealing with this very old jQuery code base. And we wanted, in our case, it was to move to React. Uh, but what we, we couldn't do is we couldn't just pause all development and just spend a year rebuilding everything we had in React because, you know, the company has to make money. We have to ship new features and improve the product. Like you can't spend a year not doing that. And so there's a real sort of art to how do we migrate to new, nice, shiny features, but in a sort of uh, repeatable step-by-step -step iterative process. And so my talk was all about that, how we took this old jQuery code base and we introduced new features uh, into it and took advantage of, of various kind of new things that landed in the web platform, uh, such as like custom elements and web components uh, to do so. So I did that talk. I talked about testing. I talked about building components that can be dumped in multiple places and maintain their behaviors. Talked about kind of scoping CSS to be on a component basis so you avoid the sort of global CSS problems. Uh, really, it was just... As a talk, it was 30 minutes summing up what I'd spent two years working on by and large or a year and a half working on. Uh, and then um, this, I have to be nice about him, this lovely chap, Paul, Paul Lewis, who is now my, my boss at, at Google. Um, he was also speaking there. He's a fairly prolific conference speaker. Again, I'm sure a lot of people will have seen one of his talks or there's about 5,000 of them on, on YouTube. And just afterwards, he just grabbed me and said, that was, that was really interesting. And there's actually an opening on my team, at, at, on the DevTools team where we're we're kind of doing a lot of this stuff. And as you were talking, it made me think that maybe you would be interested. Um, do you want to chat about it? So for me, Google had always been something I wanted to at least try and uh, interview for. I didn't know if I would if I would get in, but I always thought at some point in my career, I wanted to interview there to at least know that I tried to do it, even if ultimately I didn't quite um, fit in. And so I kind of leapt to the opportunity. I was like, yeah, I'll do it straight away. Um, and then, yeah, did did a bit of prep, went through the interview process, and, and thankfully it all worked out um, positively for, for me. Must have been a very exciting time, but probably a kind of 
I don't know, you're more seasoned now, but I can't imagine anybody going into the belly of the beast almost, which is the Google interview process and feeling calm about it. Was it as daunting as people say? What was your experience like? Yeah, I found it pretty daunting. Um, what was nice for me is that I, um, you know, Paul, as someone in Google who kind of referred me, was able to give me a little bit of help. I, don't get me wrong, he certainly wasn't giving me sort of sneak peeks at any of the questions or anything, but we were able to do a couple of mock interview kind of things, or he gave me a, a problem that I solved, and then he gave me feedback on that. So there are sort of things like that are definitely available, and that helped a lot. Um, the main thing for me was I spent a few weeks revising some things that I touched upon in my computer science degree, which I suspected would would come up. Uh, and you can kind of, if you Google it, there are loads of places that will tell you some of the questions you might get asked. You're thinking of like algorithms and data structures and stuff like that. Yeah, but what I would say, and again, I can only speak for my experience, not for every interview at Google. But for me, I didn't feel that I got asked any questions that weren't actually sort of useful questions i didn't get walked in and do the whole like on a whiteboard do this weird algorithm that you've never heard of or you learned 10 years ago and haven't touched like for me that that didn't happen my my questions um were fairly relevant two of them were actually sort of dom and javascript manipulation questions that's that's right up my street i was comfortable with those one was slightly more abstract but again was was actually an interesting problem to solve so i did do some research you know i i knew that we data structures would probably come up things like uh, graphs and, and trees and just being able to kind of traverse them. It's it's all things that I'd learned at uni. It's They're not actually that complicated. It's just I hadn't touched them in, in a while. So I just wanted to give myself a bit of a refresher. Uh, but yeah, I was very nervous on the day for, sh for sure. Um, it was a very intense day. I think there were five interviews um, on the day with lunch as well in between. Nice. And I, I got home at about two or three o'clock and I was absolutely wiped i did nothing for the for the rest of the day how long did they take you to to let you know the results of the interview if i remember rightly i interviewed late november early december and i knew before christmas i think it was two or three weeks which again i think is is kind of about average but also again can completely depend on what team you're interviewing for all sorts of factors. But yeah, for me, I was fairly fortunate. It was quite a good quick turnaround. I really wanted to know before Christmas, uh, you know, because else you go on holiday for like a week and no one's replying to any emails and that would have been, right. I've just been thinking about that all Christmas. So yeah, thankfully I had knew before that. Were you working at another company during the interview process? Were you still working at Fred, I assume? And how did you navigate that transition? Because I know some people listening are in a similar spot. Maybe they're not a developer yet, but they have some stable source of income. They're trying to navigate a job interview alongside it. It can be quite tricky to navigate, I think. Yeah, it is tricky. Um, I, in the end, just took some extra holiday. So I, I fortunately had holiday days that I could take. So I took uh, one off for the interview and I took two days off before the interview as well. And that wasn't because I wanted to spend two days cramming in as much revision as possible, but it, I wanted to spend those days doing a little bit of revision, but also just actually just kind of just chilling out and being a bit calmer. I didn't, I didn't want to have like a hectic day at work and then go the next day, go into the interviews and sort of cram in some revision or, or anything like that. So that's, that's sort of my best solution. I, I don't, it's one of these things I don't think there's a good solution for mm. in an ideal world. You just be able to say to your current company, like, look, I need to take tomorrow off because I'm, I'm interviewing, but of course that can't, you know, you can't actually do that. Um, so yeah, 
it's a hard one. I don't think there is necessarily a great solution. Really, there's no reason why your employer would ever know that you're interviewing somewhere else, especially, especially like in Zoom days, to be honest. But like when someone in the office is like dressed really nice a few days in a row, leaving a bit early, there can be, there can be a few indicators. But I think a lot of people feel a bit like, like they're doing something wrong. Like they're, they're, they're shot, they're, they're exploring different options that are good for them. And they're worried like, oh, if my employer finds out and I don't get the new job, that's going to be not only awkward, but I'm going to have to live with that awkward experience. What's your mentality when it comes to those things? Yeah, I think you're right in what you're saying that you're never doing anything wrong by talking to another company. You're, you're well within your rights to do so. And the way I like to think about it is if your employer was going through suddenly a really tough time and they had to sort of regrettably make some layoffs or let some people go, that could be you. Uh, and so therefore, you know, just as your employer is well within their rights to do that, you are therefore well within your rights to see what else is out there at, at any given point in time. So yeah, you're not doing anything, anything wrong. Um, sure, it would be a bit awkward if your current manager found out that you were applying for another job. But you know, you're not ever breaking any rules or breaking your contract or anything like that. So I just try to think of it like that. And ultimately, at some point, you have to think about yourself. And so for me, that was just like, I know I want to work at Google. I didn't hate my job at Thread or anything. I I actually liked it a lot. I really liked the people. It was it was a really good place for me to work. But just this was an opportunity that I just had to explore. Just I couldn't not explore it. it for me, it was, you know, imagine if if I say no, I don't want to interview at Google right now, and then I end up never working at, at Google. I'm just going to wonder like what would have happened if I'd have said yes and even gone for that interview. Now you're at Google. What is the experience like? Has anything surprised you? I'm also curious, like, I, I think maybe you went to the office at the very, very beginning before the pandemic hit, and now you've moved um, to working remotely, hopefully resuming soon. Google's kind of well known for having a lot of really nice perks for their employees. What's your experience been like? I miss the office. Uh, I think probably because it's very new to me, I, I miss going in. It's, it's a nice office to work in. Um, there are some nice perks. It's just a, a nice environment. I think also the office lends itself really well to collaborating and chatting with teammates and or just other people who work there. And that's what I've missed when going remote. You know, in the first few weeks in the office, I go for lunch with my team and then we'd sit at a table and it'd be like, oh, Jack, you haven't met so-and-so. So-and-so works on this other team doing this other stuff. And that would be really interesting. So the hardest thing for me is I joined, kind of met some interesting people. And since then, really, have primarily spoken to my sort of close teammates. Sure. Um, so I think it's a shame those opportunities like just run into someone and be like oh jack you should talk to this person because they do this and you'll find that interesting that's the bit i i miss um the most the remote working has been to be honest better than i thought it would be it took a while to get used to it and set up and we've been quite fortunate we moved house during lockdown so we've gone from kind of working in the same room on top of each other in a flat in london to actually being able to have a dedicated office room each so that has made it a lot lot easier but I'm, I'm keen to get back into the office i won't go in all day uh or five days a week i don't expect i expect i'll be somewhat flexible uh, but I, i'm looking forward to getting back all right jack how about we do some quick fire questions to end the podcast sure hmm vim or emacs vim vim or vs code with vim enabled uh, so I use VS Code with Vim enabled, so I'll have to go for that one. You used to be a big Vim user. Why did you switch? I did. Uh, I just find the the plugins and TypeScript experience in VS Code to be second to none. And so 
it just adds that little bit more. If, if I'm sure, I know there are Vim and TypeScript type plugins out there, but for me, they never worked quite as well as just having it all in VS Code. Um, but yeah, I still use the Vim mode for actual text editing. Here's a tricky one. I'm going to put you on the spot. What is the difference between slice and splice in JavaScript? No, I don't know that. That is honestly, I think I tweeted this a while ago. I was like, this is the one I have to look up every single time. One of them can insert things into the array. The other one will just grab you a subset of the array. And I think splice lets you insert or like delete from within the array and slice will just grab you part of the array. I have to be honest, I'd have to look it up as well. So no worries there. There was a period where you were very passionate about these sort of functional versions of JavaScript, like Elm. Nowadays, how do you feel? Are you still passionate about functional programming style or do you prefer imperative code? I'm still fairly passionate about functional coding. I believe generally that will lead to better code bases with easier to follow code. Because working in JavaScript with the APIs that it is, you can't always do that every single time. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's about being having a preference, but being pragmatic as well. So I, I try to write most of my code in a functional style, but occasionally there are times where for performance reasons or because we're working with a DOM that isn't functional, you just have to veer away from that slightly. Uh, I still am a big fan of languages like Elm. I don't get as much time to play with them as I would like. Uh, and I will follow sort of the development of languages like that with a keen interest. But for me, it's about being like practical day to day and taking the sort of inspiration and influences from those kind of pure functional programming languages like Helm and trying to apply the benefits of it to, to a JavaScript code base. In your JavaScript code, single quotes or double quotes? Single quotes. And what about semicolons? Semicolons yay or semicolons nay? I, I lean towards nay. I, d I don't bother with them. But that's mostly because I rely on like prettier to insert them when I do need them. Mm. So I just don't have to worry about it. But it's not one I feel too strongly about. And just to close us out, in just a few words, how do you feel about TypeScript? Well, you're asking a person who's just spent the last year migrating a code base to TypeScript. So I, I like it a lot. <laughs> That's awesome, Jack. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. It's been great. Enjoy chatting. As promised, here's your opportunity to win a scrimber, jumper, t-shirt, whatever you like, really. Just tweet about this podcast episode with the hashtag the Scrimber Podcast. So that's the hashtag symbol the Scrimber Podcast, all one word. For the full terms and conditions, check out the show notes.